Hi everyone. Today's podcast is very special. Um, today I interview the author of No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder. And Rach is a friend of mine who <clears throat> um, I got to know through yoga in our community and our girls have been friends and in school together and she was a neighbor, um, is a neighbor and um, wrote this incredible book that all humans should read. That's really, truly how I feel about it. It is that important. It is this essential to so many societal issues and to mental wellness and to working with the truth of our families, our histories, our backgrounds. It's powerful and it's so beautiful. One of the things I want you to know about this conversation is that um, Rachel and I, we jumped online and we just started talking really deeply right from the beginning. And so there's no intro. Um, that's why I'm doing this to tell you a little bit of history. Also, um, I refer a lot to sections and parts and stories in the book that I just, again, can't say enough. Please go get this and read through it and then ca call me, email me, get in touch with me. Let's talk about this. Let's, what, what struck you? What was interesting to you? What hurt you? What was powerful? I go through with Rachel some of the things that blew my mind, um, but I'll be curious. There's so many things that I learned in this book, what, um, what you learn. And then also we, I shared in the newsletter a few months ago on June 7th, I shared probably a July 7th, a month after a tragedy, murder, suicide in our neighborhood. And we talk a bit about it, not in detail, not at length, um, but it does come up. Um, and so you can get more information. I'll put links in about that if you're interested um, in learning more just to have some context because the coincidence of the book release and then this horrible tragedy in our neighborhood um, affecting all of us in a deep way uh, was why I actually asked Rach to come on. I knew that her book was coming out and I had been a fan, but I did not read it. And it wasn't until I sort of moved through the summer and said, okay, it's time to read this and said to her, can we have a conversation? Because clearly we need to have more storytelling and more openness about domestic violence as it's happening over and over and has been and is very secret and it's time to open these doors. It's painful, it's messy. And if you stick to the conversation to the end, um, I share also about my story. So this was a lot. Um, I don't know that you'll feel that if you haven't read the book. So I may recommend getting the book and then listening to this conversation, maybe, simul maybe simultaneously or listen to the conversation and then get the book and then listen again, just because I think it will have more of an impact after you have some context. So um, as usual, I'm committed to truth-telling in ways that aren't always easy, and this book um, kept me up for multiple nights in a row. Um, 
I just kept reaching out to Rachel saying, how did you do this? How did you do this for so long? Um, and then how did you process and handle our own neighborhood tragedy um, after doing this? So thanks for listening. And as always, please reach out with any questions, comments, feedback, um, and your stories. Okay, bye. Okay, go ahead. You were saying? I was just saying that um, it's the only crime that carries such shame with it. Maybe it's not the only crime. I don't know. Pedophilia does have a lot of shame with it. But it's, it's one of the very few crimes where there's so much shame for the victims that it, it's like a paradox in that it's so pervasive but so silenced. And I think it's, you know, people who have um, some means find it even more shameful in a weird way, which is even more paradoxical because they often have like the means to start again in a way that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, underprivileged people might find really difficult. Um, but I, I want to like, part of my goal is really to chip away at that idea of shame around it that you know if we if we think about one of the things I think about like is I go back to the day of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings which I'm mm -hmm. sure are lodged in your memory in the way they are mine like I feel like they were mm -hmm. I feel like they were a watershed moment for women in this country and the and the sort of modern feminist movement and suddenly there are millions of conversations happening across communities in this country of you know women and their fathers and their husbands their sons their brothers their male friends whatever just saying yeah you know this happened to me when i was 14 or this happened to me and the pervasiveness of just how common it is like that's what i hope something that's what i hope can happen with domestic violence that like we we start to like chip away at the shame of it just by storytelling just yeah. by talking about it yeah you know well and that right from the beginning there's this section on page 15 where you said and that's the whole point private violence affects in some way nearly every aspect of modern life yet our mm -hmm. collective failure to treat it publicly demonstrates a stunning lack of understanding about the very pervasiveness like i think that's what was keeping me up at night is the intersection of everything we're talking about with child we, with aces right and talking yeah. about how aces mm -hmm. is becoming this thing that we're talking about more and we want to identify and we want to work with but how that's related to the racism that was so clear when you were in line waiting to go into the prison to see was it dante yeah, dante yeah. and how you felt that right like yeah. all of the things that we're talking about and, and uprooting and passionate about are stemming from this issue that is still pretty quiet it, until it really your book is. Yeah. and then your book is like literally needs to be in every single person's hand in their homes needs to be taught at universities um, in every office it is so brilliant and the way that you write that is present and real but yet interesting and not overwhelming this balance that you do with the research and the statistics which are so heartbreaking right second mm -hmm. leading cause of death for african-american women yeah 
Yeah. What? And and let me tell you, two weeks after the book came out, we they released new stats about domestic violence homicide, and since 2017, it's up 32 percent in this country, 32 percent. But I want to thank you for those incredibly kind words. I felt. I mean, this is my third book, and um. I felt a level of um, engagement, like with the material. I felt like I was on a mission. Like I felt like I had a sort of, you know, invisible cape. Like I have to, you know, yes. Because because there isn't a book out there, right? There are yes. there are memoirs that are good, but they're mostly most of it is academic stuff that no one's interested in. Totally. And you know, I just thought if I mean, we have in this country four hundred years of or 350 years of not caring about this issue, right? I mean, it wasn't even against federal law until the 80s. You know, you and I were both born when it was not against federal law to beat one's spouse. And so I felt this palpable kind of, people are not gonna wanna read this because we've been turning away from this for 350 years or, you know, all of humanity <laughs> beyond just America. And so I, read apart from like reports and stats that I needed for the research I only read poetry the whole time I was writing this book yeah. because I wanted it to be something that if you were not interested in domestic violence I wanted to write a book that you still couldn't couldn't put down and walk away from that became like my mission and um people have asked me like well who do you want to read your book and I always give like well everyone I want everyone to read it but really who I want to read it yeah are judges and yeah. survivors judges because they need to know the particulars yes. of what's going on in the courtroom and survivors because they need to know that they're not crazy and they're not alone and they're not making shit up in their heads <laughs> so the piece about the shelters can you talk a little bit about what you learned in terms of why they don't work. This was fascinating to me. I know, I, I learned so much about this myself in this process. I mean, I really, I never gave shelter a second thought. It was mm -hmm. like, here's the problem, domestic violence. Here's the solution, shelter. Yeah. And I mean, just having someone say to me, yeah, just name one other crime where the impetus for change is on is on the victim. Kelly Dunn said that to me yeah. 10 years ago and I, it just stopped me in my tracks. I was like, yeah, I can't name one actually. Mm -hmm. Maybe refugees of war. There's, there's one, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but shelters are incredibly disruptive. Even the very best shelters and here in DC, we're building a new one that's fantastic and is like, you know, environmentally progressive and it's <laughs> going to be wonderful but it's a shelter. It's asking the victim to uproot his or her life, most often her, um, you know, bring three suitcases, live in, you know, one room with the kids, share a space with other traumatized people and other traumatized kids. And they're almost always under-resourced. There's never enough sort of trauma therapy, um, I mean, they do their best. They do their best. They yeah, work so yeah. hard. And there are transitional housing, you know, spaces that are sort of like shelter, but more permanent so people can live. They're, they're usually apartments, not just a room. So you have your own kitchen and stuff like that. Um, but they're still, you're still living in a kind of secret 
a secret house, right? You can't really mm-hmm. give your address because it makes people around you unsafe. Um, and there's not, there's just simply not that many of them. So if your kid is in one school district and you found transitional housing three mm-hmm. districts, districts over and you've got a full-time job, just the navigation of those logistics are difficult. So I think we, you know, while shelters are, are always going to be necessary, our focus really needs to be on um, working with the children of mm-hmm. domestic violence, uh, in, you know, who have grown up with this, partic- particularly because of what you just said, the ACEs study mm-hmm. to stop that cycle of violence and with perpetrators to stop that, this, the, 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 the violence at its core. I mean, I feel like those, those two things are severely under-resourced. Mm-hmm. And that transition piece too, when you were, um, I think it was when they were talking about the groups in California and they were, when they were incarcerated, were getting some good support and conversation, but then transitioning out of incarceration sort of back to the real world, there was nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. that's when they end up some of these yeah. And even with that, I mean, even with that program, so you're talking about the uh, RSVP Results of the Violence Project. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a year-long program, five days a week, six hours a day, roughly now. (laughs) It's a little watered down from what it used to be, but it's really intensive in terms of being an anti-violence program. It's specifically geared toward domestic violence and domestic violence perpetrators, but um, some of them don't spend a whole year in jail. I mean, domestic right. violence in terms of, you know, incarcerating someone, they might get 30 days, they might get 120 days. So first of all, many of them are not graduating from that program. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if they do graduate from the program, they might be court ordered to finish out their, their um, sort of batterers intervention on, on the outside, which then it becomes a once a week, two hours a day kind of thing. Um, but the, other than that, they have like no support. They go right back into the communities that helped mm-hmm. make them violent in the first place or made them um, feel like that was their only answer to, the, to, to, to what was going on around them. And so it, it is, you know, to quote Elizabeth Warren, it's something that needs big structural change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, but I think that that big structural change doesn't require as much money as we think it will. I really, I really don't think it will. I mean, the RSVP program is a great example. It costs more to, to create that programming in the jail itself, but then the community winds up saving money in, you know, significantly lowered recidivism rates, for example, mm-hmm. which means, mm-hmm. you know, lower jail fees, lower court, you know, costs, lower, mm-hmm. um, and, and lower medical costs for victims, right? So mm-hmm. it's a sort of front end investment. Will you talk a little bit, since we sort of just like jumped right in, um, about how you decided to write this book, why you decided to write this book, and then also sort of how did you think about the structure and the flow? I mean, you said a little bit about reading poetry while you were writing, which is Mm -hmm. incredible, and you can feel that really coming through the pages, but a little Mm -hmm. bit more about sort of the backstory. Yeah, I... I had been a foreign correspondent um, 
for 20 years before I started writing this book from like the time I graduated grad school. I just wanted to travel and write stories and I was never interested in travel writing. I'm still mm-hmm. not really interested <laughs> in travel writing, mm-hmm. um, but I was interested in humanitarian stories and stories of survival and how do people, I mean, really everything I've ever done in my life, every story I've ever done for the most part has been how do people survive the crap the world puts them through. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in some sense, maybe every story is about that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But so I covered stories in, I mean, I've traveled to more than 50 countries. I've lived, I lived in London and then I lived in Cambodia for six years. Um, and I covered stories of like women in prison for love crimes in Kabul while everyone else was out at the front line, like getting war stories. I was in the prison in Kabul mm-hmm. um, or like child brides in every country (laughs) like name name your country right like Niger India Romania um I did stories of like the kids who live under in the sewers under the streets of Bucharest I did stories of um uh women with fistulas from having their pelt because they were pregnant too young they were child brides in in Niger and of course I did a ton of post-war genocide stories Mm -hmm. from Cambodia um but I I had a baby while I was living in Cambodia and I just, I realized um, that I couldn't really cover war zones and natural disasters in the same way. I mean, I, I would be gone for a month or six weeks when I covered those kinds of stories and, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't want to be away from my adorable of little baby. <laughs> but also I felt this vulnerability, like I'd never felt yeah. before either. Like, yeah. oh, I could really get killed in some of these places. So, um, so we moved back to the States from Cambodia and I started teaching at American university and I was kind of looking around for stories, like Mm -hmm. just sort of looking around for something to be interested in. And I was standing on a friend's driveway right after we moved back here, the writer, the writer, Andre Debus, who is um, really a beautiful and well-known writer himself. And his sister, Suzanne drove up and Suzanne runs the Jeannie Geiger crisis center in Massachusetts and he introduced us and I did that American thing like oh what do you do and she Mm -hmm. said oh I I work on this um anti-homicide program for domestic violence victims and I was like oh that's interesting I've I've covered stories where that's been apparent you know and I said what whoa what more specifically and she said well we've come up with a program to try to use risk indicators to predict predict when domestic violence homicide will happen and thereby prevent it and oh by the way we haven't lost a single victim in our caseload since the program began and that that holds true still today i saw her a few weeks ago and i'll tell you what my jaw hit the driveway i was like you what you do what and i followed her around for that whole day it was a saturday (laughs) i was going to the farmer's story i can picture it (laughs) i know I mean, I'm sitting there like in her back seat with a notebook, like, surrounded by, you know, beer and peaches. And I'm like, tell me more, tell me. And um, I just, I was so immediately taken with the idea that this was a sort of living, breathing issue that we could do something about. This was not like problem, domestic violence, solution, shelter, done and dusted. Let's move on to homelessness, you know? Yeah. I was so taken away with that. And it's just kept my interest all these years for some reason. I don't exactly know why, but different journalists and writers are drawn to different things. Mm -hmm. And I'm just drawn to this for some reason. 
Um, you, you asked a question about structure. I know I'm talking a lot. Like, no, please. Do you want so yep. structure, structure is really, you're, you're speaking to my soul when you ask me a question about structure, mm -hmm. because, you know, I'm a professor, I teach writing and, the, and, the, and I also write fiction. I mean, my second book is a novel. And so structure is to me, the penal, the, 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 the um, structure is the preoccupation of the nonfiction writer like in a way that i feel like exists also with poetry but not so much fiction fiction i feel like is an act of discovery when you're writing like every line you're like what's going to happen next what's going to happen next and with nonfiction, you really need to have a sense of where you're going and a kind of roadmap mm -hmm. and from the first moment i met suzanne i knew this was a book i mm -hmm. knew that somehow this was worthy of a book and I didn't know how. And so my first sort of thinking about this book was like one chapter on the police, one chapter on, on mm. the judiciary, one chapter on a victim, one chapter on a, on a you know, abuser. And I, like, that is the absolute most boring way to tell the story. And I kept putting off writing the proposal. Mm. And that's an indication to me that like something's wrong, right? If I'm not if I'm not excited to get to my writing desk every, every day, then something is not right with mm -hmm. how I'm approaching the material. So I just put it aside for years. I remember talking to my New Yorker editor and I was like, I just think this could be a book. And he said, yeah, absolutely. Me too. And I said, but the structure. And he was like, yeah, but the structure. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, you're not helping at all. I thought you would, you know, you work for the New Yorker. Give me the key, give me the answer. <laughs> and uh, he didn't. And, um, even when I, when I finally wrote the proposal, I got away from that kind of chapter, subject, chapter, subject structure and kind mm -hmm. of was thinking about it in bigger swaths. But it wasn't until after I had the book contract and I was about six months out from my deadline. <laughs> so I'd been working wow. on it for already like eight years at that point, like on and off doing magazine work and whatever. Six months out, I finally was like, oh, wait a minute this is this is it the end the beginning the middle the end is from the victim's perspective mm -hmm. and where the story starts and like this is what we're up against this lays out the stakes and then i go back and i talk about the beginning the origins of violence which is the abuser and mm -hmm. what and what, like all the different kind of places that touch that and then the middle is is where the book ends and the middle is who who is out there? Who are the change makers? Mm -hmm. What can be done? Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I, like I nailed it. I just totally. nailed it. <laughs> totally. I mean, a hundred percent. And just because you can't predict like a lot, sometimes I won't necessarily even finish the book once I get the hang of it. Like once my mind wraps around what we're doing here, it's sort yeah, of like, like, it's oh, like, okay, yeah, I, got I got it. Good yeah. enough. Especially with yeah. nonfiction. They read right. so much of it. This again, like even up last night, there I was, like towards the end, just like, ah, oh, so what's happening? And the, and even the last section, there's this scene where you're in DC and you're looking for the door, um, yeah. and it's like winter, and you, you meet this delightful young lady who is on the other end, and like just again, really how you were weaving the stories with where we're going and then returning in the last scene to Dorothy's house, who's a victim mm -hmm. that you write about earlier. 
Um, and the personal, I think this is the piece that is so beautiful and brilliant and why every human who listens to this needs to buy this book and then buy five more and have <laughs> conversations and share it with everybody. Don't email Rachel your stories. You, you use other support uh, in your communities, please, because we want Rachel to be, you know, again, sustainability and self-care, something I care about. Yeah. Um, I mean, seriously, like this the, the human side is what is, has been missing in the conversation from just my sociological perspective. When I was doing this work in undergrad and grad and working in DC public schools, things got so clinical and you get removed from the humanness and you become numb when you're exposed so much to so much trauma and pain. At least that's my, that was my experience. And I think that's really true. I think that's spot, absolutely true it just home that you, that your real, your humanness with the loss of, uh, especially in that last scene into Dorothy in her home. Um, that's a piece that is such a gem. And I want us to continue to have those conversations about the humans, um, who are involved in this, you know, it's really true. It's, you know, I like to think that we are in some ways living in a golden age of storytelling mm -hmm. ushered in, I think mm -hmm. in my humble opinion by this American, life. I, I credit, mm -hmm. um, I credit Ira Glass with this. Yeah. I mean, he started this American life in whatever, 1995 mm -hmm. and nobody was, we had gotten away from storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we had it in the 1920s and thirties, but we got away from it. And I think that we are, I think that all these podcasts and all, you know, all yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> the ways in which we can reach people through yeah. story, the Ted talks, the whatever, um, they only resonate when you can, when you can sort of see, when you get an image in your mind yeah. of a person, yeah. right? Because you can't see a million people who are victims, but you can see one. And that's where I feel like the, that's where my skill set is as mm -hmm. someone who's trained in writing fiction, mm -hmm. you know, and, but it's also um, where we connect as people, you know, I, um, and, you know, this, this is no surprise to you because we live near each other. But, you know, I had a friend killed June 7th, as did you, um, by her husband. And then he killed himself. And his sister is, has been for decades one of my closest friends. We're all from Chicago originally. And, um, you know, it's the first time I've ever been inside mm -hmm. this. I've written from the outside about this for a long, long time, which I feel like gave me a sort of protection like an emotional protection and um i you know like it's up close and personal in my life in a way that i've never had to confront and i go back again and again to like that moment with dorothy sitting in front of her house because i i identified things in my own life like grief is grief mm -hmm. you know trauma is trauma the particulars of any kind of trauma or grief. I know this from living among genocide survivors for so long. Like the particulars are always going to be different, but we still, we still exist as people with the same eight emotions or whatever, you know, however many mm -hmm. now they say 20 something, I don't know. However <laughs> many emotions we have, we share that across cultures and across languages and across experiences, you know, and um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought a little bit, but I, I just think. Well, it's just the human nature and the connection and like, you know, what, I mean, this, the, I don't know if it's irony or 
synchronicity or coincidence. I have no idea what to call um, what has happened with the release of your book and then the tragedy in our neighborhood. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't have a word for it. Um, I call it savage irony. I mean, that's, that's yeah. what I call it, savage irony. Um, and how and to bring it forward. I mean, that's what I was, I was asking Rachel yesterday. Like, what are you going to do with that moving forward? Cause that's not in the book, obviously. <laughs> right. It's not in the book. You know, so. it's, it's interesting because, um, people have written to me about that. I mean, there was, there were two articles I agreed to two two reporters. I agreed to be interviewed mm-hmm. from in the immediate aftermath. I had a bunch of people ask and I just could not, I was like, no, no, I can't. But those two reporters I knew and trusted, one was um, Petula Dvorak at the Washington mm-hmm. Post, and another was Melissa Jeltsin at HuffPo. And they both wrote about, like, you know, I'm on a book tour for domestic violence homicide, and then this domestic violence homicide happens in my own neighborhood with my, you know, one of my daughter's really close friends, one of your daughter's close friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I have gotten sort of tweets from people and notes from people, and they don't know the particulars of the connection Mm -hmm. that i am friends with the sister of the Mm -hmm. perpetrator Mm -hmm. and so they all have the same thing i'm so sorry you lost your friend i'm so Mm -hmm. sorry you lost your friend and she was a friend of mine i mean lola Mm -hmm. is her name she you know it's public record she was a friend sort of yeah but i'm you know and it's just interesting that we exist in such binary um narratives that like I can offer you sympathy if I think you're a friend of a victim, but not the perpetrator who is in just as much pain. Right. And that's one of the things that I try to do in my book is bring humanity to everybody that has a part in this, whether they are a perpetrator or not, or a victim. Mm -hmm. And that is part of the story that doesn't get told. I think that like Mm -hmm. human pain is human pain. And I'm, I'm not excusing, uh, perpetrators and i'm most certainly not excusing what happened with you know what lola's husband did but i am complicating the binary narrative and the binary nature of it um the book is going to be out in paperback june 9th 2020 and i have to write a new afterword yeah and i will i am mulling right now what i'm gonna say about that i can't not say something about it i can't be the voice of anti-domestic violence for nine years and then when it happens in my own community go silent yeah agree (laughs) yeah so and I think that the other piece that was that was really new I don't I don't know not new but I had never thought about or knew I guess what I I didn't know about and thought about the mass shootings yeah so yeah when we're talking about Adam Lanza when we're talking about some of these mass shootings, how they're directly related to domestic violence. Yeah, it's really uh, shocking. It's really shocking. I mean, in my book, I talk, I use the stat from every town. Yeah. Um, in their research, they say that 54% of mass shootings mm-hmm. are domestic violence homicide, not yeah. that they're predictors, but that they are. Yeah. And part of what is shocking about that stat is that on top of that, then you can look at domestic violence as a sort of canary in the coal mine. I hate that cliche, mm-hmm. but in people like Omar Mateen at the, with the Orlando Pulse shooting, mm-hmm. that wasn't a domestic violence homicide situation, but he had a ton of domestic violence in his background and should have been imprisoned for felonious non-fatal strangulation in Florida, which can carry 10-year prison sentence. And he was never even charged with it. He should have been in prison still. 
Um, so you've got 54% that are mass shootings, domestic violence homicides that are also mass shootings. And then you've got this other percentage where there is domestic violence apparent. Like for example, the Las Vegas shooter. Um, you know, there, it's unconfirmed, but people have seen him or, or did see him um, verbally abusing his his partner. So it stands mm -hmm. to reason if you are verbally abusing somebody out in the open, there's a pretty good chance you're probably abusing them worse behind closed doors. Um, I mean, I wait for that. Every mass shooting story that comes out in this country, I wait for the domestic violence and it's almost always there. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, I was doing a reading in, I think it was in Boston, and a woman came up to me and said she was just finishing her dissertation and it was going to be published, I don't know, in 2020 or something. Um, and her research found, in fact, that it was 65% of mass shootings mm -hmm. were domestic violence homicides. Mm -hmm. It was even higher mm -hmm. than every town. I mean, if that's not reason alone, but then again, we don't do much about guns, do we? You know, I know, I know. And it's just, again, another layer that was kind of, it's not as talked about publicly, I think, or not connected as much mm -hmm. when we sort of say, oh, domestic violence yeah. and that's happening at home and shh, like, we don't know what to do with that. So let's put it over there. But what I love about mm -hmm. how your book is layered and structured and the flow is it's showing all of the connections, right? What's happening with these mm -hmm. humans behind the anger? <laughs> what's, mm -hmm. what's happening mm -hmm. with the humans? What's happening? What are we doing with mental illness in this country? What, is, what does our prison system look like? What does our restorative justice look like? Mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. and the pet shelters, there's more pet shelters. <laughs> that I almost, I was like, Mel, do you know there's more pet and animal shelters than <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in, in fairness, there are a lot, they're a lot more expensive to open a domestic <laughs> violence shelter. Um, yeah, I've had some I've had some um, animal lovers really get angry at me on Twitter for that. I'm like, look, yeah. I have a dog. I love my dog. Like, yeah, totally, totally. It's not against the dogs or the pets. I, know, I, I know. just the point is like you know like there's yeah. there is a kind of hierarchy. Um, yeah, and yeah, some of some of the the stuff that is is out there is just is just shocking. You know, um, I mean, I the UK seems to be moving a lot faster than the US when it comes to domestic violence, um, pr progressive domestic violence laws. There was a, in, when I was writing my book, there were laws in, in, um, in uh, England and Ireland against uh, coercive control, which is very often non-physical, right? But like the, the control of one's finances. I mean, Omar Mateen is a classic example. He gave his wife a $20 allowance every week and that was it. Mm -hmm. That's an example of coercive control. Mm -hmm. Or in my book, Rocky Mosher goes mm -hmm. and gets a, a, a rattlesnake yeah. and brings it home and keeps it in the cage as a, as a visual threat mm -hmm. for his wife to stay in line. Those are examples of coercive control. There are laws against those now. Mm -hmm. Um, Scotland will now have uh, an anti-coercion or coercive control law. Ireland has one. France has one. Um, and actually, New York and California okay. are looking at them. Nothing is, no bill has been put forward yet by anybody, but uh, my sources <laughs> <laughs> have told me that they're, that they're 
you know, in talks essentially with lawmakers to see if something can be passed, at least in some individual states. So you, how long did you work on this, the research and the conversations and the interviews and traveling? Eight years? Yeah, it was about eight years. Um, 2009, I moved back to America. 2010, I, maybe nine years, actually nine years. A long time. I mean, I had um, the, fir- the first piece I published in The New Yorker took me three years, which is longer than both of my first mm-hmm. two books. And um, I had an editor say, because I kept, it was my first piece. I was really afraid. And I was like, my God, they're going to kill this article because it's taking so long. Um, And part of why it took so long is just the ethical issues around reporting on domestic violence, reporting on um, situations where people are currently unsafe Mm -hmm. and like how to report Mm -hmm. on those with accuracy and, and still not put them in danger. And so... Um, I was really afraid that the New Yorker was going to kill it. And my editor was like, you know, I just finally asked him straight out, like two years into this process, I said, is there a point at which you just say this story is taking too long and we just have to move Mm -hmm. on? And he was very, his name was Alan Burdick. He's at the New York Times now. He said, you know, sometimes the best stories take the longest. Mm -hmm. This is not that unusual. Mm -hmm. And I was like, really? (laughs) And I took that to heart when it came to my own book. I was like, this story needs to be told. I'm going to tell it in my own way. Mm-hmm. And it's going to, it's going to reveal itself to me, you know, mm-hmm. if I yeah. just keep plugging away. Yeah. And it did, it really did. And, but there's, there just was a lot to learn. Like yeah. where, you know, yeah. where are we, where have we come from? Where are we going? Those are really big questions. Yeah. Um, and so you have to know enough to be able to distill the answers to those down, right? I mean, it's interesting when you're a writer, a, a, a literary, and you're doing literary journalism, you might have a sentence or two and, and readers have no idea how much research is behind mm. that claim. You know, it's really mm-hmm. stunning. I found that with my first book. I spent like an entire day, like nine hours straight at the Library of Congress doing research on cotton. And in, in like the final version of the book, it was like three sentences. Wow. (laughs) So what happens with those relationships? Like, are you still in touch with them? And I'm curious about your own mental health throughout that process because of how personal and disturbing and the things that were revealed to you, what was that like? Well, um, I'll answer, I'll answer the easier part of that first. I am still in touch with a lot of the people in the book. I'm still mm-hmm. in touch with the Mosier family. I'm mm-hmm. still in touch with the Monsons. Um, Martina? They, I'm still in touch with Martina. Woo-hoo! I saw her. She came out <laughs> to my reading in LA. She's so funny. And she, by the way, this will resonate more with people who read the book, but she ended up going to homicide. She oh, she did! Made her way to homicide. And then Although she was I'm like, sad. there's way too much paperwork. And she went back to domestic oh. violence. Detective. And I was like, you're in a much better place. So. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a pretty funny story. So I'm still in touch with Martina. Um, I'm, in, I'm in touch with, you know, all the mm-hmm. Jeannie Geiger folks, mm-hmm. Kelly Dunn and, you know, advocates and stuff like that. They stay in touch and give me stories. But I'm also in touch with um, Michelle's mom, Sally, and her sisters. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Espinoza does not speak to me. He, mm-hmm. he got in touch right when the book came out. And like after I was on The Daily Show, I think he, mm-hmm. his nar- it spoke to his narcissism. He got excited about it and he put it on his Facebook page. 
And then he posted like five days later, like he read the book and he claims that there were inaccuracies. I said, I wrote to him privately and said, tell me what they are. He never yeah. wrote back. So, yeah. you know, there aren't inaccuracies. He's just angry that I yeah. <laughs> talked to his ex when he didn't want me to. Yeah. Um, Dante is still in prison till next mm-hmm. year. I have not been in touch with him. He's transferred somewhere and I have to find him again. Mm-hmm. Um, my own mental health I, you know, as a journalist, I have been aware of vicarious trauma or like secondary PTSD. I've been aware of it conceptually for a long, long time. But like, like most journalists thought myself tough and immune and oh no, I am, I can cover this. I've covered this kind of stuff, like no problem. (laughs) And um, in the fall of 2014, I went on a research trip to Montana, sat in on that fatality review that I recount in the book. Mm -hmm. And I came back from that research trip. I had this conversation with this detective who told me about his worst case, which involved the evisceration of a four-year-old boy by his father. Um, And I could not stop crying. I hadn't cried in years, I don't think, except at like movies, like Mm -hmm. displaced displaced emotion I could not stop crying for nine days like I was teaching a graduate class one Monday night and I reached up and realized I had like my eyes were welling with tears I was I was completely disconnected from my body and it was disturbing and I um, was walking my dog one day and just fell to my knees sobbing I remember exactly where I was I remember the house I was standing in front of when I did that and I thought something is wrong with me. <laughs> Even then, I didn't yeah. think vicarious trauma. I just thought yeah. something's wrong with me. And I called a therapist in, in my neighborhood, a friend who mm-hmm. um, connected me to her therapy partner who said, oh, you have a classic case of vicarious trauma. Mm-hmm. And I was like, the minute she said it, it felt like, oh, right. Oh, duh how did I you know but until it's manifest in your own body you don't know necessarily what it's going to look like and so I did actually take a year almost a year off from reporting on any kind of violence I painted I read memoirs and poetry I you know went bicycling a lot (laughs) Um, (laughs) and um, I saw a therapist uh filed for divorce you know there are a lot of things happening in there and um you know my book tour kind of brought brought started to bring it back to me yeah and i and then this situation with you know in our neighborhood with the murder suicide of this couple that we both know um you know i've been i've suffered a lot i mean i've had a lot of afternoons this summer after my book tour where I just could not get out of bed, where I just am laying in bed with my dog. But I at least recognize what it is now and I have the recipe, you know? So I've been like not drinking and exercising. I went yeah. and joined the fancy gym instead of the gym where I have to combat skin diseases, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, you know, I have been uh, talking to various therapists and doing things and I've got a five-day cleanse coming up later in August and so I'm the the biggest thing for me and maybe this will resonate with your listeners is to um 
make myself really believe that self-care is not another way of saying self-indulgence mm-hmm. you know to to make myself believe that it's necessary um, and it makes me better at everything I have to do in the world. It makes me a better mom, makes me a better professor, better writer. It makes me more present in, as a participant in my own life. That's the hardest thing for me is like saying like, you know what, you can take a couple of hours and just sit and read a good book. You don't have to always be doing something toward work, 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 or, you know, other people's needs. So it's very real. I suffer from vicarious trauma. I think it's going to be something that I just battle with in my life a little bit. I hate that terminology, but I think it's just going to be something that I have to continually sort of find a balance in like, Oh, getting too, I'm getting too intense. Yeah. I got to pull back. Yeah. So I just do hired. You know what, do you know what yeah. that looks like for you? That intensity? Like, how does that come out? Is it more like for lots of us, it's overworking or over caring for others or staying yeah. up late? Do you know what you're Well, like? yeah. I mean, I have, um, I have a, I have a lifelong, um, uh, I have lifelong trouble with insomnia. I remember mm-hmm. my parents taking me to somebody, some sleep specialist. I must've been six years old. So I have always, that's always the first place that it goes is like sleep. I can't sleep or I fall asleep and then I wake up at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, I also work a ton. Um, mm-hmm. I lose myself on social media because it's easy and doesn't require any emotional energy. Mm-hmm. Um, although people mistake that for th- thinking I'm ready to communicate or something when I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, what I need to kind of rejuvenate myself is alone time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that comes often like at the gym, like I've, I have girlfriends who are trying to, always trying to get me to take a class with them. Like, And I, I'm like, you know what? I hate classes. First of all, the music always sucks. <laughs> I'm very particular <laughs> about my music, but also it's really meditative. Working out at the gym for me is yeah. my moment of meditation. Yeah. And, um, you know, drinking is something that I, the last couple of years has been a challenge for me in a way that it never was before. So I recently quit drinking. Okay. Um, and uh, I just have to tell myself that like, I have achieved, I have achieved mm-hmm. a certain amount of um, comfort in, in my life. And I worked yeah. really hard to get here, right? Yeah. Like, the book feels like a mission. I'm a tenured professor. Yeah. I have a great relationship with my daughter. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to push away from that American, yes. particular American sense of striving for more, more, <clears throat> more, 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 more. Yeah. 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 Um, and I love, you know, I love spending time with people who I can have real conversations with. I'm really blessed to be, um, you know, I'm from Chicago. I've lived in Washington, D.C. for 10 years. But my closest friends who are all from Chicago, we all grew up together like we were babies. We met when we were 20. Um, They all live here now. It's unbelievable to me. (laughs) And we each have one daughter and our daughters are like 9, 10, and 11. And we get together pretty much every weekend. And we just talk. We just talk to each other. 
and that is that is like a blessing in my life and in my daughter's life and mm-hmm. so um yeah they keep me sane <laughs> that community and the piece is that authentic community where you can be your true self like you're not trying to be anybody else and exactly and just I mean, fully I, show I have, up yeah i'll give you an example like they love games and they're t- all the kids love games and i hate games we have yet to figure out what it is but i just like <laughs> settlers of Catan or you oh know, geez. Like, yes you would just yes. torture me by playing these games and I have tried and I end up losing my shit. And it doesn't even matter if I'm winning. Like I take no joy even in mm-hmm. winning a game. <laughs> I just hate it. And they know this about me. And sometimes they force me to play games and then I lose my staff. <laughs> and then I have to like spend the next five days apologizing for like who I am. But they always, they're always like, yeah, we know. You we know. Games. Like it's your thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. So that's really, that's really a comfort when you can be with people yes. like that, yeah. who are like, yeah. you know, you're a weirdo, but we accept you anyway. <laughs> right. Well, that's the blessing of aging and like being, you know, having that over time where they sort of accept and appreciate you for who you yeah. truly are. You know, I don't know what it's like for you, but I feel so much gratitude in my life right now. Even when I'm sort mm-hmm. of suffering emotionally as I have this summer, I feel so much gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same. I mean... I mean, I think there's, I think there's a way in which what's happening politically at like the, the, like the, the visual part of our country is so disturbed and Mm -hmm. so dark and so terrifying Mm -hmm. that like people like us are really finding, like burrowing into our communities and our people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what are you, what's your plan? I, I'm mindful of time because I know you have something oh, right yeah. after this. Um, yeah, so I just want to ask you to wrap up. Um, what is your plan? Not in a more, more, more way, but I'm asking you from my heart, what are you doing with this moving forward? Are you planning on writing more about this? Are you planning on taking a break to see where it lands? Do you, you know, you're getting these emails and people sharing stories. What do you think? This next you know, part looks like for you. I, think, I honestly think that like I will. There's a couple of stories that I'd like to write. A couple of magazine pieces I'd like to write. I don't see myself writing another book about this because yeah. I feel like I wrote the book and that yes. book is done. Yeah. Um, I might write. You know, I, I could see myself writing a book in the future that takes on another social issue that might be related to domestic violence because mm. as i point out in this book mm-hmm. most of our social issues are related to yes. you know, i'm particularly yeah. interested in in trauma and children yeah um but i also there's so many ethical issues with reporting on on children that i don't know even like how possible it is to do mm-hmm. my next book is going to be a memoir um so that's the, like the kind of immediate uh the sort of immediate thing and then i actually have another my my novel, What We've Lost Is Nothing, is going to be out in paperback um, in the spring. Mm-hmm. And I have another idea for a novel. I mean, in my, in my heart, I'm a writer. So mm-hmm. I, just, I keep yeah. writing. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not an activist in that way. I'm a writer. And so yeah. I think that's going to disappoint a lot of people. But that's the truth of who I am. Yeah. So. <laughs> I think just owning that is the best part. Um, and why I appreciate, that's why I also wanted to ask, you know, do in terms of future and people reaching out or, you know, again, that's why I sort of was saying, I want people to buy this book and have the conversations and, and become activists in whatever way they want to, but to bring these stories to life and 
to start um, having more conversation. So one of the things that happened just to close is that when I was five, um, I went to the airport. My, I used to travel back and forth between my parents uh, alone on airplanes because <laughs> it was the 80s wow. and they let you do this. Right. And uh, one summer I returned from my Connecticut visit to my uncle picking me up at the airport and uh, I wanted to know where my mom was because I was four, five, had just turned five years old and wanted to see my mom because I hadn't seen her. And um, he took me home to a house that was covered in blood and <gasps> told me to get my things and then um, took me to a shelter. And my mom and I lived in the shelter and um, it was really scary and it, and I was really afraid and I was I remember being mostly quiet because I had no idea what was going on and they separated us all day so the kids would be together and we would be told to be quiet and you know there was one area we could be in and there was a tiny little backyard with I remember a basketball hoop because I remember that damn bouncing mm. um, and at night we would get to be together and we would stay up and we they put us in the same bed and we would talk because I had been gone all summer and I didn't get a chance to tell her like what I had done all summer you know because mm -hmm. it was sort of everything happened so fast mm -hmm. and so um I have been open about this it's not a secret I've talked to my mom about it she does not remember a lot of it because it was so traumatizing for her Oh my God. Um, the fear and the abuse and hiding from Jeff was his name. And all of this, all of this was very painful for her, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and after I talked to her yesterday, I said, I'm reading this book. I'm going to give it to you when I see you. Um, I think I might need to go back and investigate. I've done some writing on it, but I, I'm still curious, you know, what other pieces and and did this have anything to do with my life's mission of helping people, um, which has looked a lot of different ways, but that the scene of the girl um, in the DC center and her youth and, you know, just brought back and really connected so many pieces for me in why helping people in, in lots of ways just feels like the only way I know how to breathe is yeah, yeah. your book brought that to light for me in ways that I hadn't identified before. And so I just, I can't thank you enough, even if we weren't friends. <laughs> um, it feels more special that we're friends and I get to thank yeah. you and hug you in real life and tell you how much this means to you, me. But wow. like, this is the most profound book I've read in years, if not my whole life. And I think wow. is not, um, I don't say that lightly. I say that it's, it has really profoundly affected every area of my life. And I want everybody who's listening to this to do not hesitate, buy a copy and read it, go through it, talk with people about it mm -hmm. um, because you don't know the stories. And at the end of That's your right. book, you say about your stepmom that she mm -hmm. had that also and had not shared. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is how we start to do some of this healing together. I think so too. That was beautiful and incredible. Thank you, Pleasance. Yeah. There's a reason I collapsed into your arms crying when I heard about the murder-suicide in our own neighborhood. There's a reason. So, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything. I love you. Take care of yourself. 
Lots of laying in bed with the dog. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Thank you. Thank you All for right. having me. All right. Talk Bye. to you soon. Bye.